Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week in episode 45, we're discussing Excalibur 43, Home Comforts, or Who Exploded the Toilet? And this is it. This is my favorite issue of Excalibur. I'm excited, I'm nervous, and it's going to be great. Excalibur 23 was originally published in November 1991, and the creative team is Alan Davis on writing and pencils, Mark Farmer on inks, Glynis Oliver on colors, Michael Heisler on letters, and Terry Kavanaugh on editing. I dreamt of the dragon. I have awoken him. Can't you see all around you? the dragon's breath. We have drawn him out. The Duke is off to pursue your men. There he goes. Good. Mount your horse! I will transform you into the semblance of the Duke. Igraine will think her husband has returned. But the cliff, the sea, your lust will hold you up. You will float on the dragon's breath. Ride! I am not wasting time on my intro today because I'd much rather talk about transformative sexy circus dreams. So I am Dr. Anna Papard. I write stuff and like stuff, including Nightcrawler and Excalibur number 43. And I am joined, as always, by Mav. Where are you at this week? I am in the middle of finals grading. I have three functional brain cells left in my head uh, <laughs> that have got to carry me through like the next 48 hours. And at some point I have to go see Spider-Man because um, that's uh, just to situate when we're recording for, yeah. for the listener. But I do love this issue and I am excited that I, I assume we're going to spend the next hour talking entirely about body bags, physiology and his allergies and nothing else. <laughs> that's the only thing we're going to cover, right? Um, because that, that that's it. But um, that's the thing the I like about the issue. Definitely. <laughs> yes. <laughs> for the listener, uh, my name is Christopher Maverick. You can call me Mav. I am an adjunct instructor of English lit at like 
half the schools in Pennsylvania right now, <laughs> which is why I'm exhausted this week. I read and write about pop culture and uh, comics and sex and gender. And I don't know. I think I said all those things in, in the wrong order. I'm very, very tired, people. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> but but um, I'm also the host of another podcast called Vox Popcast, where we talk about more of the same kinds of stuff. I'm going to turn it over to Andrew now. I'm, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> I'd imagine our conversation of this issue is going to prick you up pretty quick. Andrew, how are you feeling this week? I'm in the same boat as Mav. I'm I'm dead. Um, But I am going to do a proper introduction. I'm Dr. Andrew DeMann. I'm the project lead for the Claremont Run, which is a big, cool, super sexy project with a fun social media presence. And in 2017-ish, I taught a course on comics art for the visual studies department at the University of Toronto. And it was a highlight of my career because I got to work with some elite student artists to create really cool comics-based projects, both um, narrative comics and critical philosophical comics. And the course text for that class was written by today's guest so i'm i'm really excited for today's discussion. did you use unflattening because i have i'm a big fan <laughs> i did but i didn't want to say the name before the reveal oh sorry. <laughs> <laughs> spoilers mav <laughs> i'm sorry well let's go ahead and introduce today's guest then someone whose work we clearly all admire we have the great pleasure to be joined this week by none other than dr nick Susanis. welcome nick thanks for having me um this is fun I didn't know that I didn't know that spoiler was coming either. So thank you very much. I'll tell our listeners a little bit more about you, Nick. So Nick Susanis is an Eisner-winning comics author and an assistant professor in humanities and liberal studies at San Francisco State University, where he is starting an interdisciplinary comic studies program. He is the author of Unflattening, which we just mentioned, originally his doctoral dissertation, which he wrote and drew entirely in comics form. Published by Harvard University Press in 2015, Unflattening received the 2016 American Publishers Association Humanities Award for Scholarly Excellence and the 2016 Lind Ward Prize for Best Graphic Novel. Nick's work has been published in Nature, the Boston Globe, and Columbia Magazine. His Columbia piece, titled A Life in Comics, received an Eisner Award for Best Short Story in 2018. Now, Nick, I like to start with people's comics origin stories, and I know that's a story that you've told in many forums um, over the course of your career already, but for the benefit of our listeners, I'll do a trifecta question for you. When did you start reading comics? When did you start making comics? And when did you decide to make making and teaching comics your career all of the questions thrown at you right off the top (laughs) great thank you so much i will try to field them in a sensible uh, fashion (laughs) um i started reading comics certainly in my first year i mean the reading is you know how much i was actually reading i can't say but um uh, i had a much older brother who was into batman comics so batman ends up being my first word which is something i've managed to replicate in both of my children (laughs) Not intentionally, but somehow it happened. And so I was, you know, I mean, I really can attest to the the sort of literacy qualities of comics uh, in my own experience. And now again with my children, besides in my teaching. And I made them, you know, I, I was a I was a kid who liked to draw and I liked to draw things that look like things from very young. So I, I was making comics like things as a kid. And seventh or eighth grade, I, I made my own comic Locker Man, who has a cameo appearance in Unflattening. 
Yeah. And that ran for all the way through high school. And then, you know, when I got to college, the kinds of programs that we're part of didn't exist. So studying comics, making comics in university certainly wasn't something you could do, even think of doing. And, and I wanted to do smart things. So I studied mathematics. So comics takes a backseat oh, wow. for quite a while. Yeah. Um, I still read them. I, I still sort of tinkered in making them, but I never got much finished. And it's really not, uh, let's see, 2004, I ran an arts magazine in Detroit and I was asked to be in a political art show around the elect uh, the, the presidential election and I only had a few days to create something so I made a comic for that um, and I was pretty excited about it I made one right after that so I, it, that, that really shifted from comics as storytelling to comics as essay yeah and then I did another another piece we did an exhibition on games and art and I I made a, a comic as an essay about the history of games how games work and sort of applied it to life. And um, when I ended up deciding to get my doctorate, I used these things to say, this is the kind of work I want to do. And the, the you know, I, I really liked being part of academia, but I kind of didn't like how academia tended to stay in its own corner and not reach a lot of people. And I saw what I was doing with comics as a way to do this thing that I'd loved since, you know, zero, basically. <laughs> but, um, and do my thinking in ways that I really enjoyed, but also to bring people into conversations I felt that they'd been excluded from. So yeah, I think, I think I hit all those questions. (laughs) You definitely did. Can I ask you a question about your mathematics background? Do you find that that sort of informs some of the ways that you approach the comics medium? Yeah, that comes up. I'm sure it does. I mean, it's interesting. I, I, one of my best, best math teachers, I'm still in touch with periodically. And, uh, I had him for a proofs class, and, and, and he really liked comics, too, so we, we, we hit it off quite a bit. But, you know, I, I don't know what anybody's experience is with writing proofs and things here, but there's something very much about everything having to look a certain way and sort of be presented in a logical fashion. You know, and, and you get down to the end of the page, and you, you put the little QED or the little box. I would draw the little box at the end that shows you were done. And spend a, at least I did, and, and from learning from him, you spend a lot of time sort of redrawing, rewriting, redrawing it so that it's easy to follow and so that your steps make sense and i I see you know my pages are very densely planned um yeah yeah. and i i you know i mean i i have to think i have to keep thinking more about it but i think that that need to have all the structure fit together in a way that makes sense it may seem very much not mathematical but i think anybody that spent time working on proofs to share and to show their thinking, it's not so different at all. And, and certainly for the way I approach both, I think it's quite a bit more similar than it seems on the surface. Yeah, I can definitely, I mean, I'm not a math magician at all, but I can definitely, <laughs> as soon as you said that, I was like, that makes a lot of sense in terms of sort of my understanding of your page composition, that there's something mathematical going on there. Yeah, I mean, you're trying, you know, you're trying to hold together all this different information and yet still have it read in a way that's logical. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can do that by being very spare in your design or you can do it by a lot of other layers of cues. And I I seem unable to not... (laughs) To not fill it with lots of other layers of cues. I think partly that sort of can disguise weaknesses in my drawing if I just make it denser. Oh my goodness. Anyway. Let's talk just briefly. I mean, while we're still talking about kind of your work and practice, I mean, about that title, Unflattening, and that concept, right? Because, I mean, you were mentioning layers. You're talking about density here. Like, what's important for you about comics and that concept of unflattening? Like, what does that term mean for you in terms of your comics practice? Yeah, and it's funny. I, most people assume because I do reference Flatland in the book that that 
is where the term came from, and it, it's actually not at all. Um, Flatland I was aware of because of math background and other reasons, but that was sort of an afterthought that ended up, it's one of the few things that got changed in my outline to what I actually made. It, it moved way up to the front just because it worked there. But but really, when I first got to doctoral school, part of my work was I was just making comics for my, my schoolwork, but part of the work was also researching comics to show, you know, really to show my advisors why this could do what it what I felt I could do. And partly as I was like talking about what they could do, I, I would say this thing that, you know, that, that a comics page was able to hold more information than a flat sheet of paper seemed possible. You know, that this yeah. was this kind of unflattening of ideas in the ways that you juxtapose images, juxtapose image and text and, and all the other, you know, more complicated ways that we read a comics page. And so that notion of unflattening, you know, sort of stuck with me as how I talked about comics. And then it started to come to how I talked about interdisciplinarity and how I talked about image text interactions and a whole bunch of other other things about education and such. But but once I sort of had that hook for myself, it helped me organize all this crazy set of ideas. Oh, I love that. I really just want to get to talking about the opening sequence of this comic within the context of some of those things that comics can do. Um, so maybe let's just do that. I'll do the issue summary and then we'll we'll get right into it. If I haven't mentioned it before, I'm very excited to talk about this comic book. So <laughs> I, why? <laughs> no idea. Doesn't doesn't hit on any of my core interests at all. I, um, I assumed you'd hate this one. <laughs> okay. I know we've got lots of lovely listeners reading along with the pod. We definitely let the homeless, unemployed, alien bounty hunters among you share our lighthouse if we had one. But as always, let's get airborne with a plot summary. Excalibur number 43, Home Comforts, opens in a gymnasium. Kurt's gymnasium in the basement of the lighthouse, where he and Megan are performing a very joyful, very spectacular aerial routine. As they perform, Megan transforms. When they land, she's blue. After a sweaty, tense moment, they embrace, passionately. But suddenly, an arm that's not Megan's reaches out to choke Kurt. It's Brian. Kurt was dreaming and talking about Megan in his sleep, and Brian is not happy about it. Rachel intercedes, preventing a fight. Brian says he's going downstairs to read his book in peace, but there's little peace to be found in the badly damaged lighthouse currently housing the tech net while they assist with noisy repairs. Domestic hijinks ensue. Pharaoh 2 overloads Kitty's computer in a misguided attempt to assist her with investigating Widget, and Body Bag devours Kitty's teddy bear, leading to a bout of indigestion, leading to a substantial explosion inside the lighthouse's only bathroom. Kitty finally admits Brian might be right that taking the tech net in was a mistake, but he's already gone, heading for the basement. There, Brian encounters numbers and the larger of Excalibur's two dragons, striking up a love connection. <laughs> He respectfully backs away, only to encounter China Doll munching on maggots. Brian takes flight back to the main floor, but forgets about the new anti-grav elevator, which hurls him into a messy collision with the ceiling. As he's groggily recovering, Brian sees Kurt comforting Megan and snaps, violently lashing out at Kurt. Kurt and Brian fight, first in the lighthouse, then on the shore. A tearful Megan finally pleads with them to stop, and they do. Megan flies off with Rachel in pursuit while Kitty fetches a first aid kit. Brian has broken Kurt's leg. Then Brian and Kurt talk. Brian asks Kurt if he loves Megan. Kurt says that he doesn't and that Megan is true to Brian. But he does admit to being intoxicated with Megan, especially when she's in her blue form, which he describes as, quote, the embodiment of all I desire. Brian starts to apologize but doesn't get very far. A swirling portal opens and he's seized by several alternate universe captains Britain, who say he is due for a court-martial on Otherworld. They take Brian with them into parts, leaving Kurt alone on the shore. Meanwhile, on another plane of existence, Kailun and his band rescue Princess Satine, the sole remaining royal and true ruler of the planet. As his army grows, Kailun prepares to take on Necrom. 
So I don't know how much we'll talk about that today, but I certainly want to talk about this opening <laughs> sequence. I'm pretty sure we all like this issue. I'm just going to skip through first impressions today. And the way that I thought we could structure our conversation today, like I would argue this is just a really perfectly paced comic in terms of narrative comics. So I am going to invite us to analyze it as a classic five-act story structure. A classic five-act structure, often extrapolated from Shakespearean dramas, though Shakespeare certainly didn't invent it. It goes act one, exposition, act two, rising movement, act three, climax, act four, falling action, and act five, catastrophe or resolution, depending on the kind of story that you're telling. Exposition would be the opening sequence that we have here of Kurt dreaming about Megan, which obviously is where we're going to start. But before we talk content, let's talk a little bit about form and make the best possible use of our wonderful guest. So a lot of definitions of comics focus on the combination of text and image as an essential part of what makes comics comics. Wordless or silent comics obviously trouble that definition. And Excalibur number 43, while it isn't a wordless comic, opens with a wordless sequence, which is very unusual for superhero comics, which makes it worth talking about. I'm curious, Nick, why do you think that this comic opens with a wordless sequence? And what do you kind of make of this sequence in terms of, I mean, I don't know. I'm just curious about any thoughts you had about the composition of this sequence. We have some interesting paneling here. The interconnection of the gymnasium bars is kind of interesting. I'll get, I'll make it open-ended. What are your thoughts on this opening sequence? I hadn't thought much about the bars, but it's pretty great. I don't know. It's page two, I guess. As uh, They're sort of going through it. So it's sort of a simultaneous scene that they're moving through at the same time that it's this sequential you know this sequential bit of activity but it's moving across what is i think a single scene there right on page two is that correct can mm-hmm. you guys say that yeah um, and yeah. that's a big that's a big heart of the stuff that i think about in comics that's that sort of mix of the fact that we read sequentially but we take in all at once and, and the way comics play with that so i think he does a terrific job with that uh, I, I have some thoughts about how they come out of the panel, but maybe I'll save that. But I, but I think wordless, I, I always teach at least a fair amount of wordless comics in my in my intro class and, and in my making courses. And I think the superhero ones, it's really interesting. There's, there's a death of uh, Robin is dead already, um, Batman comic. There's Spider-Man, J. Jonah Jameson's wife has died, um, drawn by Marcos Martin, really wonderful comic. Oh, um, yeah. There's a number of superhero comics where they're sort of heightened emotional stories that are all wordless. And I don't know that I have a great understanding of why. I mean, I think people would argue that it allows you to bring your own your own experiences into it. I'd be curious to hear what you guys have to say about because I, I do teach these and I think they're frequently around pretty pretty heavy emotional things when they pull out the words. Yeah, I mean, I like that suggestion that it has to do with foregrounding subjectiveness of experience. And I mean, that relates to this being a dream sequence too as well, perhaps. Andrew or Mav, do you want to jump in with opening thoughts? I mean, this is basically, we'll do first impressions about the opening sequence, basically. Um, I think one of the things that I wanted to point out that I thought was kind of interesting from a formal perspective is there is a theory I've spent the last three minutes trying to look up the the, the scholar who wrote it. Um, that that comics are actually really particularly good at simulating the experience of dreaming um, yeah, by presenting yeah. a series of fragmented images that you know have a little bit of a dream logic element to it in their sort of um surrealism uh, and at the same time forming a, a cohesive narrative that still leaves gaps for filling in particular things. So I, I think we're in a really cool territory for immersing the reader in this experience. Uh, and I think by coming in cold as we are, not knowing that it is a dream, uh, I think that's very impactful and especially Especially coming into a scene that we've seen before uh mm-hmm. it, it, it was a long time ago obviously right um but i mean you see those two characters 
in that backdrop and in those outfits uh, and you're immediately hearkening back to it and I, I think you're just like stirring the reader in so many ways here um, that when you you come out of the dream and you know you have Brian's hand around your throat I think you feel that sense of like like shock and disorientation in a way that's really powerful to me yeah how about you Mav I would key in on what Andrew just said about the surrealness of it and mm -hmm. connect that to what Nick said about um, the fact that this is a single scene and I, I, I want to talk about that for a moment because it is, but what, what's fascinating about it to me is it's a single scene from a background point of view. The, right. um, Kurt's maze of jungle gym equipment is one connection, but Kurt and Megan are moving through this the scene in a way that's you know very common for the way Kurt's drawn. Kurt's drawn this way a lot. Spider-Man's drawn this way a lot. It's it's something you do with acrobatic characters or speedsters to make you make to make it look like they're in motion. But in this particular section, it's not the way this is normally done, where it's just like, look, the Flash is in eight different places in this panel. Instead, what we have is Kurt and Megan are in real time connection standard movement from panel to panel while the background stays stagnant. So if you notice uh, what where this really comes across is places like panel one, two, three, like panel four on page two, where their bodies are, are cut off almost like it's the poetic equivalent or the visual equivalent of poetic enjambment. You are seeing a portion of them, but they do not connect. They do not reach out into other panels, which mm -hmm. Kurt frequently does. Fr Kurt will frequently jump from one panel to another. He's not doing this here. He's trapped within the panels, as is Megan, wherein the backgrounds are not trapped within the panels in the same way. And that is fascinating to me. It creates yeah. a discomfort at the the same time as um you know the fluidity of motion that you know you're seeing with the motion being you know a concept that doesn't even really make sense it's a comic it's a still image you know silence doesn't make sense all comics are silent but because we're breaking our comic conventions the way that we normally read comics it leaves us feeling very ethereal so even if you don't know it's a dream yet something seems off about these first two pages it just feels weird in a way that isn't normal yeah there's a term for this actually I, i'm not sure if this exactly qualifies but wouldn't this be a polyptic yeah it's got a lot of things going on i don't <laughs> yeah <laughs> i mean yeah i think i think scott scott mcleod would call it a call it that word which i don't think i know how to say i think the simultaneous scene with the sequential action across it is is interesting it's not it's not the deluca effect which my students right have. it's almost but it's got all those things so I really love, and you just pointed that out, how the fourth panel on that second page is, you know, we see their whole bodies in all of them. And then all of a sudden, you know, all of a sudden now we're, we're in the close-up, which obviously they should be visible or some shadow of them visible across. But I think that speaks to the dream nature of, of what you said, about how comics are so good at it is, you know, the fact that comics are always fragmented, right? right. Like we accept the fragments of comics without any trouble. So you can, you can do these sort of strange things. I mean, it's strange to all of a sudden see these figures much closer to us than we saw before. And it's strange to see them stick out of the panels in the bottom, but, but that's the nature of comics. So we accept it. I, I think that's one of the troubles when you try to do things like, motion comics which are horrid um <laughs> that, that illusion you know because all of a sudden the the artifice that that works for comics becomes heightened and it falls apart right but in this you know because it's flat and static we can you know we're, we're navigating it at our pace in our way and we can we can spend time in that fourth panel and and enjoy it for how he drew the characters or whatever whatever the things we want to do and then leap back out to the next one but in ways that if it were moving or something it would be really dis disturbing. I, I want to go back into it. You said we could spend time in it. I want to, I actually want to, because 
there's a few things happening here that um, we tend to be extremely literary minded on this show because that's primarily what the three of us do. But I have an art background and design background. So welcome to Design, Photography and Art 101 with Christopher Maverick. Um, <laughs> listener. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the most simple version of me teaching photography. Like I really mean 101. If you're shooting action or glamour shots, which this is both. This is particularly with Kurt, with Kurt and Megan. Yeah. This is yeah. this is exactly how I might shoot a cover of Playboy or Maxim or Sports Illustrated, right? But there are certain rules. You do rule of thirds. You don't center characters in frame. You center them not quite on a third. We use, we use thirds when we're teaching. You actually use phi, which is a mathematical concept, getting really weird. But you want to put people slightly off center, but you also want to avoid breakages of body at joints. You do not chop knees. You do not chop crotches. You do not chop elbows. You want, like, if you think about every portrait you've ever seen, you'll notice that it's cut off like at bicep level, not at elbow level, not at shoulder level. Shoulder level feels weird. Knee level <laughs> feels weird. Now look at this page and it's intentionally, you know, Megan and Kurt's knees are chopped off in the first one. Uh, Megan's ankles in the second panel. The third one is just her hair. Not so bad. The next one at Megan's crotch, at Kurt's hip, Kurt's elbow, Kurt's other elbow, Megan's elbow, like literally everything about this is wrong and uncomfortable mm-hmm, mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. subtle ways that, you know, I'm a pretty good artist and photographer. Alan Davis is an excellent artist. He knows yeah, these rules. Yeah. Like, he, like he is intentionally doing everything quote unquote wrong with his layout of characters on this page to break the visual conventions of glamour. And it feels off. It's still beautiful. I don't mean to, I, I don't mean it like, oh, this sucks. Um, we, I've criticized art a lot on our show, but this is wrong intentionally for an effect that makes things, you know, it's a key to the fact that it's a, it's a clue to the fact that it's a dream sequence. Yeah, and I mean, I think I would contribute to the conversation by saying that making it a wordless sequence puts a lot of emphasis on the formal properties. I mean, we notice these things because there isn't text, because there isn't caption boxes. The story is just being told through bodies and through paneling and through backgrounds and through the composition of the page. And that's what allows us to focus on the composition of the page. And there's different things going on there, right, in terms of the deep reading that we can do about the symbology of these bodies, which I certainly want to talk about. Also, just making us think about things like what is the relationship between super bodies and movement and the impossibility of these bodies and the ways that I mean I always think about the relationship between superheroes and the city and this is something that Scott Bukatman talks about so well that superheroes have the freedom to exceed the grid and placing them within grids can emphasize that powerful excess that they have because their ability to transcend grids their ability to appear powerful within still images and grids is like a triumph over the restrictions of you know the city and it's you know very square architecture it's sort of dominating architecture the ways that you can feel overwhelmed by systems right superheroes can exceed all of those things and particularly when you have a character like kurt who's defined by acrobatics and fluidity who's a mutant right who's a monster right who's a beautiful monster who's this character who embodies all these multiplicities and hybridities that's such a powerful way to represent this character in particular which obviously is 
one of the things that I really love about the sequence. And I shouldn't neglect that this is also a really important way to represent Megan, right? She's an empathic metamorph. She's a character defined by change, defined by motion, defined by fluidity. And we see this sequence working to serve both characters on a symbolic level here, even though it's within Kurt's subconscious, which is something that I want to talk about certainly a little bit more. And I, well, I'll add to that just the thing that Nick said too about the ways that it encourages you to spend time you know, in individual panels. Uh, yeah, definitely part of the sexiness of the sequence as well. Okay, okay, uh, yeah, okay. Because I was going to say, I love how you're saying, oh, well, this is the thing that I love. You're very scholarly. This is the thirstiest two pages of comic that Kurt's ever appeared in. This is, yeah. <laughs> and this is like super gazy. And I was oh, like, yeah. that's one of the things that you love about it? Really? Okay, let's make sure you were going to acknowledge it. Oh, yeah, I mean, the, the, the sweat has sparkles. I mean, it okay. is one of Yeah. Okay, <laughs> okay, just making sure. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I want to talk about the gender aspects of it and I mean yeah. I just we could talk about sort of the Kurt character aspects of it too I mean we've talked about the Kurt and Megan dynamic obviously in multiple episodes before but this is such an encapsulation of it for me in terms of Kurt says later in this comic that Megan transforming into the female presenting version of him is all that he desires and there is so much bound up in that if you think about this dream sequence as his ideal representation of himself and his ideal representation of what Megan would represent to him sexually, there's a lot going on, right? I mean, Kurt talks all the time about rescuing damsels in distress. It's a phrase that he says all of the time. And yet when he has this sexy dream about Megan, he doesn't dream about conquering her. He dreams about her flying by his side as his partner and for them to be equal in that sense. He dreams about a woman who matches him physically. And yes, I'm going to get to the egotistic aspect yeah. of her transforming oh, into him. That's always yeah. part That's always part <laughs> yeah. of the sequence, right? But at the same time, we can't always neglect with that aspect of the Kurt and Megan relationship, the ways that her embracing his beauty means something differently. Like it means something differently when Megan transforms into Brian than when Megan transforms into Kurt. And especially again, does we're it? talking about, I think it does okay. because it's embracing sort of a different type of beauty and a different relationship to the body. And I think that that matters in terms of, I mean, you know, in terms of why this is a fantasy for Kurt, right? He is a character who struggles to be accepted because of his appearance. So someone adopting his appearance and validating that appearance as beautiful specifically okay. because of the ways that we think about women and femininity as being sort of resonant with beauty. Kurt becomes beautiful through the feminine representation of him that doubles him, right? Yes. And that yeah. is really interesting in this sequence in terms of that being a fantasy of his, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. Now I'm on board. Um, <laughs> because, okay. <laughs> no, well, specifically because of the of his. For, I'm trying to qualify this very weirdly and in terms of like sexuality studies and masculinity studies i think it's different because kurt is non-normatively attractive yeah that's what i'm getting um, at yeah and i don't think he's doing something different psychologically i think it only works because because kurt's a demon for better for lack of a better here's what i'm getting at if kurt were conventionally ugly i think that yeah, the story yeah, becomes yeah. more more clear kurt is beautiful as a demon i'll compare it to when sharon carter becomes a female thing that would be different because now you're turning the feminine character into a traditionally ugly monster i mean uh, ben grimm's not like as horrific because he's it's still a comic it's got to be aesthetically pleasing but ben grimm is 
seen as visually unattractive from a narrative standpoint in a way that Kurt's not. This is not Megan becoming the blob. This is not Megan becoming the thing. This is Megan becoming, you know, a sexy alien-ish kind of creature rather than you know, a sexy Aryan kind of creature. I, I think there's a little bit of caveating there. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because of how Kurt is. My minor pushback on it would be that I think Kurt's beauty is really important in terms of his imagination of himself and yes. in terms of his relationship mm-hmm. with his body. Like, one of the things that really draws him, draws me to me and to his body and in terms of my identification with him as a character is this, and this isn't the only way to read the character, it's just sort of how I read the character, is that he actually does really love his body and it's it's the world that tries to convince him that he shouldn't yeah. love his body. 100%. Because, I mean, that's very much relates to my own relationship with my body. You know, some of the ways that, you know, I'm very tall and athletic, you know, I got misgendered sometimes in my youth in part because of those features, which can make me appear masculine depending on how I'm wearing my hair or how I'm dressed that particular day. And that was very much sort of the sense that I had when I was younger that I actually did feel really comfortable in my body. I loved the things that my body could do, but the world tries to make you feel like you should be ashamed of those things. And so the joy that Kurt takes in being both beautiful and different, I think that dynamic is really important in the sequence, though I definitely take your point that we can overstate, you know, Kurt's being differently beautiful and everything because he is very normatively beautiful as well. And I right. am careful right. about not overstating that. And I totally take your point there. The reason I point that out is because I don't want to minimize the, uh, I'm going to be on Brian's side here, um, which I think is actually <laughs> going to come up with a, a bit in this issue. I don't like the tendency both of popular criticism and intellectual academic criticism that we do to minimize the problems of the normative people, which is yeah, going to be yeah. odd, which sounds odd. Um, uh, just a quick story. I saw there was this thing a couple of months ago where, uh, no, a couple months ago, probably a couple, couple weeks ago, Olivia Munn, actress, is pregnant currently. And she just randomly posted to her Twitter something to the effect of, you know, it's very weird waking up and looking in the mirror and not recognizing my own body. And it was basically, it was a, I feel fat and I feel ashamed of this because I'm, I'm so excited to be having a baby, but I feel fat because... I'm looking at my mirror and I don't recognize myself. This is a statement that I have heard a million pregnant women make over the course of my life. It's a thing that happens and fine, right? But she took a lot of flack from random horrible people on Twitter who were complaining at her for how dare you complain and compare yourself to regular women. Your job's being attractive and you should be happy that you hit the jackpot. And I remember reading this going, "She's ha- this is her Twitter account. She's having a personal moment that, you know, yes, I get that she's a pretty woman. Sure, wonderful her you know she's rich wonderful for her but that is a very real human moment and you're telling her she's not allowed to have a human emotion so i think that when we look at brian for instance brian is a definitively gorgeous man like in every normative kind of way that's like his deal oh my god i'm too perfect but brian has feelings of inadequacy that i i very much try to not rush over when we're doing on the show because i think it matters that yeah you're six foot six you know, 2% body fat, and you still feel ineffectual oh, yeah. and emasculated by the little blue guy. You feel ineffectual and emasculated.
manipulate it by the 15 year old girl who's smarter than you oh yeah like that's, that, those that's, things matter so that's what that's mm -hmm. what kurt and brian are fighting about i want to talk right, about absolutely. that as well mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um but let's come back to you nick i know that you said you had thoughts about the third page of this sequence the kiss sequence so i did let's, like... uh, I, had, I had one thought to what you just i'm not sure of the third page but yeah go just ahead on the second page to what you said i mean this is a simple simple thing but they really they do all exactly the same movement yeah mm -hmm. exactly the same movements not mm -hmm. kind of the same and not sort of in they're not like partners in move they're they're synchronized uh, you know it's synchronized moves which to all your points about how she's sort of you know I, ideal to him and all that feel like he's he's really done his job in the drawing I don't know. I don't have more to go with that, but I think it's it's really smart on on Davis's part to have made that choice. Yeah, and that oh, there's just so much going on there in terms of. I mean, I think this being it gets right back to this being a wordless sequence, right? And some of the tensions bound up in the way that this page is formally composed, which you know opens the door to these multiplicities. And of course, the gender stuff going on here, where we have you know Kurt is beautiful like Megan because Megan is beautiful like Kurt, and what's going on with gender fluidity there, but. But there are so many different ways that that mirroring works. I mean, again, as a fantasy of Kurt's self, as like Kurt's imagining of Megan's fantasy of him. But I like that you said, Nick, that it's a parallelism rather than a partnership, because I, I do take your point there. And I think that that's important because that can get back to the egotistic reading of the scene. But it also gets back to the importance of the final panel on page two, in which suddenly they are situated as equal. Because Kurt is framed, he's at the front of all the panels, you know, in the first mm -hmm. panel his arm overlaps her like he's in the foreground of all of these shots and then suddenly we get this you know panel with the empty background and you know the empty background there's so much space for us to invest in that emptiness right that gap between these characters at which their faces you know are at relatively equal height they're both in the foreground and that shift from Kurt always being in the foreground to them being equal when she shifts into him is an important shift and I don't think it means a singular thing but it's clearly done on purpose to sort of avoid evoke more of these complexities having to do with the exchange between these characters and their bodies. Right. And that, that equalness stays through the third page, which you were right. I did put a note about, but um, it stays <laughs> on the third page until just before it shattered. The mm -hmm. second to last panel, we shift to looking at him. That's really, yeah. Well, what about this second page? I mean, I don't, or the third page rather of the sequence. I don't like it as much as the previous page. It's actually not my favorite kiss. I like it okay, but something about kind of like the hardness and the violence of the kiss. I think it makes sense in terms of Kurt's fantasy, but it's not really like my fantasy kiss, but I like it. <laughs> I just don't, I just don't love it. <laughs> well, that third panel, they've got a yin yang thing happening, right? Just in the, the way that their bodies are interlocking. So mm -hmm. it's again, parallel, but mutually interdependent there's something about the third panel is like the perfect representation of it because there's something about the way that alan davis draws blue megan that weirds me out but i it's, yeah, it's an intentionality yeah. this was true in his previous run on the book too when davis draws kurt's fantasy version of megan kurt's fantasy megan has five fingers kurt's fantasy megan yeah, has yeah. no tail yeah she's blue and she has pointy ears and she has the kurt golden eyes but she does an incomplete transformation into curtness which is weird it's a weird choice megan's powers should allow her to do full transformation but she very specifically 
only transforms halfway. The facial features go and the skin color goes, but not the extra appendage of a tail and the loss of fingers and toes doesn't happen. And that's an odd choice to me every time. Every and time she I see doesn't. And I always really think about the nose, too, because especially in that parallel scene, you know, where we're seeing the profile of both of them, Kurt has the aquiline nose and Kurt and Megan has the extreme upturned nose, which is important. Well, but see, that that I at least see is just differences in facial features. They just mm -hmm. look different as opposed to the more species-esque kind of. Oh, yeah, but I, <laughs> I think it's connected in I terms your, of. I see your point, as, though. Yeah, yeah, in terms of like, yeah, like assumptions of gender and the ways that she is a very heavily feminized version of yes. him. And that brings mm -hmm. out elements of his inherent femininity or gender fluidity or whatever we want to call it. But at the same time, it is making boundaries between who is the man and who is the woman here. And I think that comes out in the kiss. And maybe that's part of what frustrates me about it. I'm not sure. And if you allow the tail to be a to be a phallic symbol, then yeah, exactly. that explains why she doesn't get it. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know what to do about the fingers and toes. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't. It's a, and because there's been points, there's been many points in comics where Kurt has noted that you know five fingered people are weird. You know, <laughs> like like, like, like it, 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 it's not like an accident. Um, Davis is very well aware of the two fingeredness of Kurt or oh, yeah. uh, three fingeredness, I guess, because I count the thumbs. So Kurt is unique. He keeps some uniqueness even when get when matching with the blueness of Megan. It strikes me as weird because it gives a little bit of i mean this is him being her being his fantasy girl but it gives her a little bit of indiv individuality beyond the very simple my perfect girl is somebody who looks just like me you know mm -hmm. and is just like me and is exactly my twin which would be creepy <laughs> you know <laughs> um but like there's a little bit of Freudianness, but not quite to it. Mm -hmm. Andrew, did you have thoughts on page three before we move to Act Two of this comic? Because we gotta, we gotta move forward. I could spend the entire <laughs> episode on that scene, but not so much page three. I know I'm, I'm cheating the format a little bit. I you would can. just say that I, I think we do need to note that what Kurt is doing to Megan is symbolically violent. That, that he mm -hmm. is projecting his fantasies onto her. That's yeah, using yeah. someone who is very vulnerable and conscious of being used. So I don't like that. Uh, and the other thing I don't like, I, I have to disagree with Mav because I, I agree with what he's saying, um, but I can't feel bad for Brian. Brian cheated on her and made oh, her friends no complicit in it. Yeah, you know no I mean? excuses like, for Brian. He has no he's right he's wrong. He's he's right in this specific instance right here. No, not even. <laughs> oh, you don't think? No. Wait, 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 what I, wait, claim I mean, is he? Oh, he has he none. Has. No, no, no. He, ha no, he has none. I'm saying he's not wrong for feeling bad sometimes. I No, he's, his behavior is abhorrent. I'm saying that like he's been put in a situation beyond his control. You're allowed to feel bad when you feel... When I, when I said that earlier, I was talking about specifically in the ways in which he feels ineffectual and he feels... Yeah, his insecurities like, make sense, right? Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, I should clarify that. That's cool. I, I was misunderstanding. Yeah, yeah no, no. I, well, I think I, was, I think I was vague about it, but yeah, so I just want to make sure... So in, in light of those two conclusions, that I'm, I'm cheating and throwing in there i would just like to go on record as saying that numbers and dragon are the only healthy relationship in this <laughs> series. yeah yeah that's fair yeah i mean I'll, I'll say quickly about the kurt thing too i mean it's not it's easy to idealize that sequence but it is a complex sequence and you're absolutely right andrew in terms of you know obviously megan doesn't have agency in the sequence it's kurt having a dream about megan and i mean i forgive him for it because it's his subconscious and he can't be responsible yeah, for that yeah. but at the same time i think what's good about 
about it is the way that his fantasy isn't simple. It's a complex fantasy, even if it's not an appropriate fantasy. And that's what I like about it. I, I think there is a little bit of complication with, um, to this because it's a fantasy. And the book is at least trying to say that he's not letting it infringe on real life. I don't know if I buy that. Oh, yeah. Okay. I yeah. We'll I want to talk about that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and that we're going to get yeah. to some of the limits of Davis as a storyteller when we get to that. Okay. Okay, good. Because <laughs> um, I'm like, mm. <laughs> but, I, but I wanted to move to let's talk about like sort of the conflict between Brian and Kurt a little bit more and I wanted to ask you Nick about page six in particular so page six is the one it's got Brian and Kurt interestingly in profile mimicking the Kurt and Megan in profile shot from page two I'm at the top of the page with the yellow background and then we get sort of a panel not repeated but sort of similar to that in the second last panel on this page and I think this is just a like a perfectly arranged page and as a comics practitioner, I was wondering if you had thoughts on this particular page, Nick. Am I wrong in thinking that this is a well laid to get laid out page? I think it's great. I, it's is the one I put the most comments on. Um, oh yeah. And it's been a bunch of time. I, I mean, I won't spend a lot of time on now, but I think the, you know, it reads to me. I, I was thinking about the sort of four beat comic strip. Like, yes, mm. there's more panels than that, but I feel like we the four the, the four tiers are kind of reading. Like there's dot dot, and then there's that downbeat, the 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 silent panel, silent third row, and then the ending to it. I think he sort of mastered that timing where the second row sort of acts as one. Even though there's three panels, it's kind of one instant. Like we mm -hmm. see, you know, we see this situation be diffused in this very unexpected way, right? on the moment there i don't know where i'm going with all that but but i think i, I really i really like the the one and three the parallel between them and then it happens again uh what is it 18 i think page numbers are yeah it, it, it doesn't happen again on 18 but i feel like that with rachel you know i mean he does a lot of these sort of long pan, you know full width panels and and some of the tall ones too which is a little bit surprising i don't know i i like how that that sort of memory of these two like we connect the top the first and the third and then we may connect that 18th one 18th page one as well and i think that's a strength of the sort of visual form of comics and and a strength of the sort of rhythm that this page has it has this sort of beat and then this sort of all at once beat and then boom boom and then everyone laughs or whatever whatever the right response <laughs> is for that's my general thought. Andrew, I think you brought up sort of the conflict between Kurt and, and Brian. Did you have thoughts about that page? I just love how much he's doing with sort of space and expression and pacing to give us a sense of what the conflict is between those characters and the ways that Rachel and Megan fit into these conflicts as well. Yeah, I like it. I, I like that um, um, exactly as Nick was saying, um, that second, we'll call it a panel where it's three panels that mm -hmm. actually sort of stages the um, three bodies that are in the other images yeah so yeah. you've got you know th that idea of that division and in the center of those three panels is this kiss between megan and brian it, it's perfect it's it's really well executed uh, and i was also going to say um maybe related to what nick was saying as well um i i kind of got the feeling sometimes that davis likes to do those tall panels in order to simulate the interior architecture of the tower oh uh, and just yeah. kind of mm. give you that feeling okay. of them being stacked in this this tight tall space yeah, but I could be wrong about it. I'm looking at it. I'm not 100% sure. But that I agree with that middle panel of the three is, is such a, you know, this tiny little slice. Yeah. And their blonde hair now, you know, we've gone from the two blue hair kiss to, yeah. to this, you know, this poof of blonde hair flowing next to each other. And yeah, I don't just know what to say about the red in between, you know, the red background there, um, you know, that heightens a lot of things there. Yeah, to me, the red is like, I mean, you know, obvious things with red passion, but also the intensity of the conflict, right? The thing that's at the center of the conflict is the panel that's at the center of this page, 
right? And that's kind of done yeah. really well there, both with the organization of the page and with the coloring of that background. I mean, what's so great to me about just sort of the pacing and the layout of this issue, I mean, it's just, it's really someone who's, it's not that you have to be the writer and the artist of a comic to produce a good comic. I think that that's something that we assume too much when we talk about non-superhero comics, which tend to do that a little bit more. Like, I think the ways that a writer and an artist and teams of people can create a comic is just as special as, you know, when someone is the, the writer and artist. But at the same time, this issue is a good example of, you know, the writer and the artist are the same person. So they're on exactly the same page in terms of, you know, literally <laughs> exactly on the same page yeah. in terms of the story that they're telling. And it really is coming across well on a page like this, which is just doing so much with the layout, right? Because, I mean, this is, again, a page where we don't have a lot of dialogue. But think about the first panel. We get the expressions between Kurt and Brian, right? Like, Brian is angry and Kurt is like I think it's interesting that Kurt's not looking at Rachel Rachel is looking at Kurt and Kurt is looking at Brian and there's so much bound up in that in terms of the shame Kurt would feel at being called out on this by Brian and he talks about shame later in the issue which is a very loaded word for me with Kurt but still Rachel is somebody who looks up to him that you know he is supposed to be a mentor figure for and for him to exhibit this weakness in front of her that's a lot for him Kurt would be very uncomfortable with that so we see him like avoiding her gaze and we get that focused upon because it's this wordless wide panel that we have to spend time in right it makes that exchange of gaze is very meaningful in the way that it's composed and then we go back to the repetition of that and then we see Rachel turning from Kurt and looking at Brian and we see Brian's embarrassed face and Kurt having more of a blank expression than that one and just those little differences in the exchange of looks says so much about again we've talked so much about like throughout the podcast about the complex relationships between these characters this is like so many of the complex relationships between these characters told in a single page in which there are how many three dialogues bubbles that don't really say a heck of a lot i mean one of the dialogue bubbles is morning darling right that's the most important one though <laughs> it is I mean, the most that, important that's one the only one you couldn't cut yeah yeah, yeah it's yeah. the only, like it, like everything else is literally just staging this is the moment that makes rachel stare work and rachel and kurtz because you know megan doesn't know what's going on She's just, you know, oh, I'm wandering through, but better kiss my boyfriend. That's the thing that you do when you wander through the room. And then, you know, Rachel and Kurt get to look at him and go, she loves you, you idiot. I think that's the one that matters. To me, that that morning, darling, is the entire, it's the entire page is, right. is that word bubble. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so that was our kind of rising movement. This is sort of, we're getting what the conflict of this issue is going to be sort of in this scene. And I want to talk, again, more zeroing in on that conflict between Kurt and Brian, but let's go to the conflict and talk about it kind of that way, which is, you know, the fight, which is the climax, right? I love this fight sequence, like, really, really, really a lot, and I can obviously talk about why, but I'll ask the question of, you know, what are Kurt and Brian fighting about? Are they fighting about Megan, or are they fighting about somebody else? And, you know, guest privilege, I'll give you first crack at it, Nick, if you would like. I'm gonna defer to people who experience <laughs> in the last 30 years. Um. <laughs> That's okay. I'll ask you about some of the, about some of the formal properties of it too, because All I right. want to talk about that too, but um, I'll go to Andrew and Matt with it. What are Kurt and Brian fighting about? Yes. <laughs> that they're fighting about both. <laughs> this is going into what I said, what I hinted at earlier. I think Davis 
doesn't like Claremont's stupid little love triangle. That's what I think is happening. Yeah. So I think Davis wants them to be fighting about leadership, and he wants this to be, uh, look, Kurt's got an innocent little crush, and he knows it, but he would never let anything happen with it. That's not what Claremont was going for. Claremont was going for a dude who wants to steal another dude's girlfriend. Kurt all but says so several times yeah, during during the Claremont run. So I think that the answer is different depending on how you look at it. I am very much a, a the author is dead scholar, so I don't really care what Alan Davis wants. I think that I'm reading this book as 126 chapter narrative and they're fighting about Megan. <laughs> you know, they but they're also fighting about what Davis wants them to be fighting about, which is sort of their diametric opposition of like sort of worldview and how this team works. Like, I think that's what Davis wants them to be doing. And and Megan's just the sub the subtext of that. But I don't think that's really fair. I think it's both. This I think it's a mistake, honestly, on Davis's part. I have no right to judge Alan Davis whatsoever. Sure, sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. But this has been a fundamental conflict from in Excalibur since issue one. And and it's a good conflict. It's a good mm-hmm. love triangle. We've gotten a lot out of it, and he seems to want to push past it. Uh, now the way that he's trying to do that is with this sort of um um cathartic violence, which is something we're all I think pretty familiar with. And Dickline Superhero books. It works. And I, I think he executes it supremely well. The thing I like the most is, is Kurt's characterization. This idea of like the gentleman who's kind of a little bit sketchy, uh, who, who doesn't want to fight. I don't want to hurt you. I'm the nice guy. And then the fight gets a little real. And he's like, yeah, okay, I really want to fight you now. Uh, and you get Kurt indulging in that kind of um, pent up anger that he's been, I don't know, um, suppressing under uh, a veneer of civility or some sort of way of which he can sort of show up Brian in his lack of civility as well. So there's a lot of cool emotional layers taking place in that fight. So I think it's beautifully executed. I, I just I don't like closing the loop on a conflict that I loved so much uh, in previous issues. And spoilers for coming for coming up issues. I mean, it is closed. I mean, yeah. this is. This is going to be a non-issue in like entirely in like four issues. This is going to not matter at all anymore. (laughs) I get that about it, but still, I think that this fight is a little bit more complicated than we've maybe given it credit for in this first pass, because I would like to link it back to the aerial dance with Kurt and Megan, and that this is a repetition of it in sorts of sorts between Kurt and Brian. And I mean, in obvious senses that, you know, we've talked about the complex you know, interrelationships between these characters. I mean, yeah, it's a quote unquote love triangle or quadrangle or whatever. And yet it's a love triangle in which one of the members of the triangle transforms into the two men involved. So it's more than just a conflict (laughs) over Megan. There's another dimension of this that we have to keep track of. And it doesn't matter, again, if Davis is going in that direction with it or not. That element of the relationship is present. You know, you could read it like Kurt and Brian are fighting because they're attracted to each other. I think that that would actually be more stereotypical than what I think is going on here for me, which is that, as I mentioned before, I think, you know, they're fighting about different ways of being masculine. And if you think about what Brian says when he chokes out Kurt, waking him up for the from the dream, he's just like, I'm so sick of you, like, oozing all of your, like, Germanic charm. And, like, Kurt's like, what? <laughs> well, <laughs> and that's where, where the thing, which I wanted to clarify when Andrew said the thing earlier, this is where Brian's wrong, right? Like, Brian is a bully. Brian is a bully who thinks he owns his girlfriend because he is pretty and deserves to. He's pretty and rich. Like, that's it. 
yeah, I am accepting of him having complex feelings of insecurity and of, you know, when it, it hurts when you're not too perfect. I, I'm sorry, dude. You know, I accepting of that. But his central issue here is I deserve to, to have Megan because I'm pretty and rich. And by the way, I read Captain Britain. He only wants her because she's pretty now too, right? <laughs> like that's, so I get the flaws of Brian and I think Davis maybe wants to brush over that a little bit to get to the story that he wants to tell, but I don't think we can do that. Um, in fact, I know we can't do that. That's why we're doing a show. <laughs> but, but you know, I don't think most readers can do that because, you know, this story didn't start last issue. This story started 43 issues ago and he, needs to respect that the fact that i like alan davis as a creator doesn't excuse ignoring the rest of the story any more than i so do you remember what the, the issue i don't remember the issue number but the one where kurt and megan go shopping and come back in entirely different clothing with no yeah, bags yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and we're like uh yeah that was odd you know so <laughs> so i i don't think it's fair to just be like oh no this is a, just a misunderstanding on brian's part no there's something yeah. going on no i yeah. think that yeah. too but i mean i'm kind of getting at the ways that bodies tell the story in the sequence mm -hmm. and that's why i'm trying to compare it to the opening sequence because yeah, the thing yeah. they're not composed the same way obviously but the thing that they have in common is kurt's beauty and there's a couple of poses that he does throughout this sequence where his beauty is very exaggerated like i'm thinking of the one-armed handstand that he does over brian's body to avoid him and then also the pose that he does when he teleports brian outside of the lighthouse and he does that like chest open pose you know arching his back so beautifully and in both poses he's got full extension like hands toes fingers full extension he's fighting like a performer and if we read that into the fight and we read that into an aspect of how because, you know, again, the dream was Kurt's subconscious, right? That's like his vision of himself. And I think it's really important to Kurt as a character to feel beautiful, to think of himself as beautiful, and to demonstrate that body through the way he performs, even in the midst of a fight. And you can see the way Brian gets to him here when Kurt loses control of his beauty. And he becomes ugly in a few panels here, you know, when he's sort of losing control of himself. And that's done very deliberately. Exactly, yeah. exactly. But, like, demon, but I also think to, yeah. to key into what you're saying, though, I think that there because you, if you want to if you want to really compare it to that first scene, the thing that Nick brought up about that first scene is not just a partnership. It's a she's she doppelgangers him, right? Like she is very, very much doubling him. Whereas Brian, I see this more as opposed opposing views of masculinity as the, as though not it's not a partnership at all. They are partnering in the way in which all fights are partnership. That's why that's how choreography works in movies. Yeah, it's yeah. how professional in wrestling, wrestling works. Wrestling, right? wrestling, yeah. yeah. So they are partnering in that respect. But the story, the psychology of the match, you know, to my wrestling scholar friends here, is that <laughs> they are different kinds of men because they don't mesh up the way that Kurt at least imagines Megan is exactly the same kind of woman as he is. They are not mirroring each other. They are yeah. entirely opposing each other. Yeah, but in conversation with the scene in which Kurt is being mirrored by a woman yes. and fantasizing yes. about being mirrored by a woman, that says something about his relationship to gender. No, I, yeah, yeah, I think we're, I think we agree there. Yeah. Yeah, I just can't emphasize enough. Like I've reread this comic so many times, <laughs> and those poses that Kurt does within the fight. It's dumb, but God, those are meaningful to me in terms of the story that's told through the way that his body is drawn and designed here and positioned and 
again, I just think that that sense of him as a performer within the fight and the sense of how he fights with Brian, too. He does try to avoid he tries to humiliate Brian, you know, rather than fight. And he finally gets goaded into the fight. And again, the fact that he gets goaded into the fight is really significant. Kurt is a character who usually fights passively. He doesn't usually go on the offensive. And again, the fact that he slips into that here becomes really significant in that context. And you can see the tension of it with it in, you know, throughout the sequence, you know, these moments of extreme beauty with him juxtapose those moments of sort of demonicness. Before you get dragged away, Nick, can I ask you sort of about the the silence and the aftermath of the scene and kind of the falling action? I'm thinking of kind of page 25. Like 25. I really think sort of the use of silence and space there is sort of important. And I was just curious if you had thoughts on it. Yeah, I'd say the use of silence and space there is really important. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I asked I mean, that question in the, in the wrong way. <laughs> no, no, I think you're exactly right. Like it, you know, this stretches the time out. It stretches the space out. It lets us yeah. sort of linger in there. They're small, you know, they're very small characters. And, uh, you know, I think the weight of the situation sort of overwhelms them. And, you know, you got the ocean crashing around them. It's great. It really allows you to linger yeah, I mean, I think we're drawn into that. And I think quiet moments, I mean, whether it's wordless comics or things like David Small's Stitches, where, where the, the, the moments of wordlessness really, really let us linger in it and feel something that we're not, you know, we can't go quickly and just read the words. It works great. And even his downbeat on the, you know, where he says, yeah, on the third yeah. panel. Love just, that. You know, like we could have done it in one panel, right? He could have said, does your leg hurt? Yes. And that could have been been in one panel. But by giving us time to like see the scene repeated again and that wait before he switches to the close up, you know, that's pretty masterful use of timing. I I want to redraw it to think about how it all works. But I started thinking about their purple and green pants, like um, (laughs) like the villains here, right? Um, Mm, Yes. That's not about, you know, that could just be. So he could keep things clean. I who knows. Right? Um, oh yeah, I think it's on purpose, though. I mean, you know, we've yeah, got Glennis Oliver, who's a very, a very skilled colorist, and I would imagine yeah, he knows what colors mean in comics. <laughs> yeah, well, and I don't. Again, I think it helps to have known, you know, what what they typically wear in this comic to to speak to that. But yeah, it's it's really good. I mean, I just love it. It's just such a tiny picture of them, and then we come a little closer before we come smack up to his face to see. He's, you know, had a bloody nose or whatever's going on. It's and, and then again, Kirk's face in the bottom corner. That's it's really sharp, really sharp storytelling. I like. Um, you can see how much time is passing too. Like between the does your leg hurt yaw panel, like because you see the seagull moving from one position in right. the sky to another, which like sort of drags out that space too. It. Yeah, it's yeah. a good so well thirty seconds in my mind. I mean, it, that, that's a long, drawn out, you know, uncomfortable silence. Right, drawn because the way that here. What do we make of Megan's intervention here? I mean, we are going to get a focus on Megan's character in the issues coming up. So I don't want to go too hard on this issue for sidelining Megan in a conflict that's kind of about her, which is really, really, really bad. But again, skipping ahead, we are going to get some focus on her character moving forward. So I don't think it's as bad as it could be because of that. But like on its own, her giving the conventional speech of I'm not a prize to be won. Don't love it. But um, yeah, maybe just taking it in the context of Megan yeah um like i agree but, but but like megan as a character any kind of standing up for herself is is really hard it's true uh, and i think when you pair that with the utter love that davis puts into the illustration of her face like like that is the image of megan right that when you do a search for megan online that's the one you're gonna find um yeah so i, I think in that context it's not as bad 
I, I share your concern again, just um, sort of making her the, the, this kind of victim, but she does get a moment to stand up for herself. The only problem is that nothing comes out of it, right? Uh, afterward, it's okay, well, I'll just go back to being Mrs. Captain Britain eventually. Well, yeah. yeah. I, mean, I mean, my complaint about it too is that, well, let's talk about the Curtin and Brian sort of resolution conversation, which is the one thing that I kind of don't love about this issue, but um, in terms of it being a conversation that happens between Kurt and Brian that doesn't involve Megan and Kurt and Megan, Megan never have a conversation about this ever yeah like not through the rest of excalibur not up to like 2021 like never they are never going to talk about this and i have issues with that because i don't love that because that simplifies the conflict i've been talking so much throughout this episode about how complex the conflict is and yet this exchange between kurt and brian does simplify it to being a conflict between them and the uncomfortable scene it reminds me of is that one with kurt and brian in the pub where brian's talking about cheating on megan with courtney and Kurt knows and is complicit in it and this kind of feels like a bros before bros scene again and I don't love that right right what bothers me Davis is aware of it he's aware of it because he pays lip service to it briefly with Megan's what Megan has here is she has a speech of I'm not a prize to be one and she also says look it's the way my powers work you're all so much smarter than me I thought you got that which is interesting because it means that for the past 42 issues, Megan's been aware that she's changing to meet people's. She's, I mean, she's like, I thought everybody understood that. I don't control it. It's just how it is. So that makes her seem brighter than everybody else and good. But you're right. Nothing comes of it. I do think that to me, when I'm reading this back then, and I see it still now, though now, you know, 30 years later, I don't have the issues just memorized off the top of my head. So I'm going to say this and then see if Andrew's Claremont run superpowers just kick in. This Damn mirrors <laughs> this mirrors a conversation between Dazzler, Rogue, and Longshot, which is exactly this scene um, during the Australian Outback um, yeah, run, right the before annuals. the Siege Perilous. And basically, Rogue and Dazzler, have, they have this exact fight over long shot and um, oh, sorry different one not in the annuals it's a sylvester one yeah it's a sylvester issue and they have this exact fight and rogues and rogue says to dazzler i thought he could hang out with whoever he wants and dazzler said nope he's my property which irritates long shot he says your property like i'm what a slave you know they, they were in a relationship but you know i can't go roller skating with my friends because that's what that's what it was i think davis is trying to do that same beat here but he's she, he's short shifting Megan because I think he wants this storyline to be over. He really yeah. wants this love this love triangle to be over. It feels like he doesn't like it. I know again spoilers. He's going to make it go away because he's got a different story he wants to tell with Kurt, and I don't think that's fair. I, I don't think that's fair to the reader. It was it didn't feel fair to me at the time because there is no resolution to it. Even in the time since the times that we have brought up Kurt's attraction to Megan in the years since and including what their storylines that are going on today as to what exactly is going on between them. It's not the same. It, it isn't the same and it's different. And, and, and I, I think a lot of the nuance is lost because again, I love Alan Davis. 
he doesn't know how to do that nuance here and he doesn't want to so he doesn't want to learn well yeah and i mean sue is bringing up you know <laughs> some of the limitations of alan davis you know as a storyteller and i think there's some of the dialogue here that i find very dissatisfying in terms of through the visuals he's telling this really open-ended multi-layered complex unflattened story right and then the dialogue is kind of flattening it a little bit right because he's having megan explicitly state i can't control it and you're like oh okay well so then my reading that you sometimes have agency when you're transforming into Kurt like when you became the like female presenting fencer version of Kurt and fought at his side you didn't control that because it kind of seemed like in that moment you were controlling that and he didn't write that right he didn't write it and but but it feels like a wrong read of that situation to me which again I don't want to believe that Davis's opinion on whether or not Megan controls it means anything to my headcanon because there's too much evidence to the contrary. But it well, yeah, is... we've, we've had scenes where she thinks about Kurt when he's not there. Like, she is attracted yeah. to him. And Rachel, I mean, we've had scenes where, which we didn't talk about much on this issue, but Rachel is aware of everyone's attraction to everyone and has said so. And Kitty doesn't even have psi powers. And, like, literally 20-plus issues ago, Kitty's like, oh, shit, it's going to hit the fan sooner or later. I hope this is not it. <laughs> like, she's acknowledging it. So, like, everyone knows. And Davis just wants to say... No, not there. It's just a it's just a dream thing. He would never go any further than that. Of course he would. You know, like that's yeah. the that's the problem. So Yeah, and then I don't like Kurt's dialogue box, you know, on page twenty seven when it's the close up of his face where he just explains his attract well, it's it's from the pre- previous page as well, where he just explains his attraction to Megan. And that flattens things too, right? Because he just says, Yeah, oh, it's her zest for life that I find intoxicating. <laughs> I fear my Liar. weakness. And you're like, Okay, really? No, it's her boobs. <laughs> It's her boobs, well, okay. It's her <laughs> I mean, he boobs, might as well have said that. It's also like, I mean, I do and like the blue. And I do yeah, like I mean, the line about like she transforms into the embodiment of all I desire because that is a very loaded line, and that doesn't simplify things. That's enough going on in that line combined with the visuals that there's a lot we can go with there. And I mean, I can I can save it by being like, this is what Kurt thinks when he's conscious, and he's not being honest with himself about the true nature of his attraction, which we see coming out in his subconscious with the dream. You know, that's the way I'm going to kind of fanishly save it. But in terms of the dialogue, I just, it's not my favorite. In order for your reading to work, and I prefer it, but the problem is we never get more of the story. It goes away. Like if, I know, if I Kurt know. is deluding himself, actually, well, we do get more of the story. It takes 30 years, but um, because it because they've done, they've come back to it recently in the comics with completely different authors and everything. But like, that's the problem, right? Like if you really believe that, then that flies in the face of everything that we've seen. But if he tell if he's telling himself, if he's lying to himself, that's interesting, but uh, we'll never know. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it's interesting thing about serial fiction uh, where multiple authors, you know, like their plans change, how the character's voice is written changes. And I was thinking, which I, I didn't read the actual, I don't think I read the comics at the time, but Claremont's fixing, for lack of a better word, of what was done to, to Ms. Marvel. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like these sort of a, a 180 shifts to like correct and, and sort of editorialize in the voice of the character. What, what you were saying about this panel with Kurt sort of explaining exactly something, it kind of feels like that. Like, I don't want this situation, so I'm moving on. Um, I mean, it's it's both the sort of blessing and curse of long-running series where authors change over the time, right? I mean, it's worth noting, we haven't mentioned it on the podcast before, but our friends over at uh, Marvel Movie Talk were kind enough to ask Chris Claremont some questions recently on our behalf. And one of the <laughs> questions that I asked him about was about the love triangle. And 
you gotta take anything Claremont says at this point in his life with a significant grain of salt. <laughs> but, well, for one thing, he facepalmed when being told that there was an Excalibur podcast, which was amazing. Um, and then... Yeah, it was, like a, it was very much a, why? Why would I know, they, why would they so do that? Good. <laughs> so good. Um, and then he was like, there is, he was like, oh, there is no Kurt Megan Brian love triangle. As though he hadn't read the book, yes, or written. Yeah, it. I know, but I sort of understand <laughs> what he means in terms of he doesn't or doesn't want to or is claiming that it isn't a straightforward love triangle, that it was meant to be something more complicated than that. And that's kind of where I thought that comment was kind of going again. Who knows with kind of some of the things that Claremont says, he's all over the place, but still, I thought that that was interesting. And then the other aspect of what he said that I thought was interesting is that, you know, I asked him a question about sexy nightcrawler too and the appeal of him as a character and he said something about Kurt's body is just so fun right and so when he did X-Men Forever which you know I don't know why he would even admit to writing that but still um he wrote X-Men Forever and um he has Rogue transform into Kurt in that you know as a permanent change and so he said something about one of the reasons I wanted to do that is to show how much fun Kurt could or Rogue rather could have in Kurt's body because Kurt's body is so fun and it's so liberating and that's interesting to me in terms of how he was writing the like Kurt Megan relationship because again my preferred reading of it is that Megan is acquiring a sense of freedom and agency through some of her transformations into Kurt like not necessarily that she wants to be Kurt permanently but that experiencing different ways of being embodied is interesting and exciting for a character like this and that's again it's my preferred reading I'm not saying that there aren't ways to, you know, do a counter reading to that. But the idea that Claremont thinks that Kurt's body is interesting and exciting and that female characters might want to embody Kurt and that they would find it liberating and fun certainly speaks to that possibility, which I thought was interesting. To be fair, Claremont also says uh, yeah, that yeah, he intended yeah. to kill Wolverine permanently I know, I know, in I know. 1992, which was never going to happen. Listen, but I'm happy to believe more, what Claremont war, says when yes. it when it <laughs> confirms what I want to believe about yes. this character. Yeah, which I, which is was my point is mm-hmm. head canon's great, and I think Anna's works. It's fine, you know, like, <laughs> like the, that's why we do literary scholarship. Thank you for coming to my TED talk. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I mean, we can talk about the Kailun thing if we want, but I think I'm going to go to final thoughts. And if someone wants to do that for their final thought, we can. We're going to see more of, of Kailun in future issues. But um, I'll let everybody do a final thought and I'll come to Nick last and give him the final word. But uh, come to you first, Andrew. Any final thoughts, things that you want to talk about that we didn't yeah. get a chance? Okay. Uh, again, just paying attention to sort of detail. The, um, the bit of scatterbrain hovering over Brian is mm-hmm. absolutely ingenious. Uh, like four pages? <laughs> yeah, just connecting character and visual and emotion uh, in such a simple but like devastatingly effective way. That's just smart. What's yours, Mav? Yeah, so I thought this entire issue was going to be about body bag, so I was prepared <laughs> for it. But um, but, but I, I get that he wanted to make the joke about the toilet. Fine, you know, and it's going to matter because Excalibur only has one toilet in the lighthouse and fine. But like body bag's not allergic to nylon. That's stupid. Nylon is the most common textile fabric on the planet Earth right now. And body bag eats people regularly, particularly people wearing spandex. Of which nylon is like ninety percent of the of the makeup. <laughs> like 
this makes no sense. He should be dying because if so, fine, I get the joke, but you could have done that in a better way than like he's not allergic to nylon. Okay, Say but it's there's anything else. No, but there's something else that goes on, like because it was a thing with the portal, right? Because like he comes out of the bathroom with the toilet seat around his neck and he's like feeling better, and then Pharaoh trans translates for him and he says that he says the body bag says two entities materialized there, transformed into energy oh, sure, and sure. blasted out through the window. So something else mm-hmm. actually did happen. So that could yes, be a way to save it. We'll talk about that. Yeah, but he gets sick on page 13, on the page before. Yeah, he gets yeah, sick true, be, and foams at the mouth because he ate nylon. Mm-hmm. He ate a nylon teddy bear and yeah. no, you don't. Literally everyone's clothes <laughs> okay. are made of nylon. <laughs> fair, fair. I mean, I could talk about a million other Kurt things with this issue, but we're going to talk about more Kurt things in future issues, so I'll get a chance to do that. But um, I wanted to say how much I liked Brian in the little scene with Numbers and the Dragon. Like, he comes in on them, finds them there, and he's surprised, but he's so respectful. He's just like, oh, I'm sorry, never mind. And that is one of the scenes where I've found Brian the most likable <laughs> in, like, all of Excalibur so far. Which, again, it's his house. He just walked on in on, like, people who are squatting in his house who he doesn't want there having sex and he's like mm-hmm. oh i'm sorry my my yeah. mistake <laughs> let me leave yeah i like good that on for you him. yeah <laughs> sure i mean i did want to mention just like brian being in the sweatpants for the entire issue too i mean we don't really have to do anything with it but i think it could be another element that we could read into the conflict between him and kurt you know the fact that brian is very beautiful throughout this issue but you know beautiful in a very specific way and he's very vulnerable in a sense through the fact that he doesn't have his clothes and yet that can make him powerful as well by spotlighting his whiteness the perfection of his body sort of all of these things and i think it's obviously a very deliberate decision to have him in the sweatpants but i mean also i'll mention about the pajamas too you know we've talked about sexy pajamas so many times on this podcast it's not really sexy pajamas in this one well brian's sweatpants are sexy but it's like the contrast between brian's sweatpants and then kurt's wearing like monogrammed two-piece pajamas in this one which is interesting we should well we're, we're, it's going to come up again because this is Brian's costume for like the next four issues. I know, so. I know. <laughs> um, <laughs> we'll talk but, about it again. But uh, yeah, but just briefly, I also like that this isn't just nice having Davis back. I love that Kitty is dressed like a 15 year old girl in this. Yeah, this is, her cat sweater. I'm now, because of the way comic book time works, I am now older than kitty probably is kitty's probably 15 or 16 now and i'm almost 18 so i've passed her um as opposed to being the same age as as her when it started but i still i mean as an 18 year old i probably knew 20 girls who dressed exactly like kitty's dressed yeah. like now so, so that was so that was so fine I, it was it was a good choice nick any final thoughts things from this issue that you're desperate to talk about that we didn't get a chance I don't know if there's anything I'm desperate to talk about, but I'll, I'll do two, two <laughs> quick thoughts. I, what, what you said about the, I don't know, when we went off onto the bathroom scene and the, and the, the bedroom scene, um, I was thinking how much this comic almost feels like two comics. The dra- you know, there's a drama at the beginning that then happens at the end, but the middle is this poor guy just trying to find a place to read, right? Yeah. Uh, in his own home. In his, his own house. home, right? Like, <laughs> and it made me think there's a, I think Harlan Ellison written Batman story from like early 80s or something where he's, he's like tired and he's trying to sort of nap and he keeps having to, I don't know, he keeps having to solve crimes or whatever. Things just keep happening. I, I can't, I'm, I'm probably getting some details right, but it's just supposed to be mundane. So it's sort of, uh, I think I'd be more interested, uh, you know, in, in, in seeing that that whole issue play out um, would be kind of neat. But but I have one thing on composition that I, I'm really intrigued and I, I, I'd like to spend more time with it, how Davis switches between 
Yeah, these the the full width uh, horizontals panels and the tall panels. I like like he's really masterful at that. And I don't I've read a fair amount of his work over time, and I don't know if that's a I'd, I'd be curious to see if that's a common trait or if he chose it like as we mentioned because of the lighthouse and because of the, some of these. But uh, I, I it's really it's really fascinating as a maker and as a teacher of of that that aspect of comics how he's sort of he's using the width of the page and then and then the narrow slices and then the width of the page and the narrow slices i think it's worth spending a lot of time thinking about how he's framing the moments that way we didn't really mention it earlier but sort of the significance of this all of the action of this issue is domestic you know it takes place in like two locations and i think that that well it takes place in one location but i was thinking about nick's statement about the long panels and the tall panels and you know that represents symbolically the space of the lighthouse because the two spaces we have here are the all expansive shore of the lighthouse and the sort of compressed dense space inside the lighthouse right and again i'm going to be kind of looking out for that in future issues to see if he kind of comes back to that technique but it perhaps really stands out in this one since it's all taking place in that one location and i don't know it's just so well done i just it's like a perfect comic for me. <laughs> so, you need me again now that my truce is wrecked. Years to build and moments to ruin. And all for lust. One night with her. You don't understand, you're not a man. Use the magic. Do it. Igraine. You will swear by your true kingship to grant me what I wish. Then you shall have it. By Excalibur, I swear it. What is used from your lust shall be mine. Swear it again. I swear it! So we will wrap up other than to say, Nick, thank you so much for joining us. If you would like people to find you online, where can they find you? And what excellent work of yours should they check out? My most known for my work, Unflattening, um, graphic novel from Harvard University Press, and my website, spinweaveandcut.com, all spelled out. I post what I'm working on, the sequel to that, and tons about what I do and my all, like all the resources of what I teach. My drawn syllabi are all up there. Activities I've made up for classes and do on Twitter. It's, it's, it's all up there. So you can find me on there or find me on Twitter at nsusanis. And uh, I like to share what I'm doing with my students. Everybody read on flattening. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much again, yeah. Nick. So next, in one week's time, we will be on to episode 46, discussing Excalibur 44, Witless for the Prosecution, featuring Rachel and Megan going on a road trip, and the first canonical reference to the precise texture of Kurt's fur, which breaks my brain forevermore. In the meantime, <laughs> if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out our fabulous YouTube videos, which we've done for many of our earlier episodes. You can find those on our website or the Vox Popcast YouTube channel. As always, if you want to chat with us about Excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode, let us know. You can reach out via our website, goshgollywow.com where we've got some fun extras, and via Twitter at goshgollywow, where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras. Thank you, Andrew and Mav, dearly, for another high-flying conversation. Thank you, Nick, for taking the sky with us. Thank you all for listening, and a special thanks to Maximilian of Thought Form Music for our truly epic theme song. Play us out. Yeah, thank you both so much. And yeah, I'm not, I'm just skipping the letters. <laughs>